0: Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn along with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter 3 this morning. As we consider the Lord's Word before we share in communion together. 1 Peter chapter 3 this morning. Most people want to live the good life. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning, is living the good life to live a life of fulfillment, a life filled with joy and meaning. Maybe for each of us it's a little different what the good life looks like. What comes to your mind when you think about living the good life? Maybe it's doing whatever you want, whenever you want. Maybe it's retirement, early retirement. Maybe it's having that dream home or that cabin in the mountains, or taking more trips, or getting that job you've always wanted, or that promotion you've been waiting for. Maybe it's getting married, or having children, or being nearer family, or maybe just having more friendships. All of these are good things, to be sure. None of them in and of themselves is wrong at all, but according to the Bible, they're really not what it means to live the good life. In our text this morning, we learn what the good life really is, and it's the life that each and every Christian is called to. We're called to live the good life, but the good life according to God's standard. So Peter shares with us in this passage the biblical vision of what living the good life really looks like. And so let me read it for us, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Peter continues, he says, To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Hear the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit. We thank you that you are one God. We thank you that you have written to us in your word, recording for us, for all who have eyes to see and ears to hear, your plans for us, your purposes for us, and what it means to live the good life. We know that Whatever it means to live the good life, that you are at the center of it, and that your gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is at the center of it. So teach us this morning what the good life is, what we're called to do, how we're called to live, what we're called to believe. Remind us, Lord, that we might live truly for what is important, what is utmost, Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we launch into this text this morning, I want you to look again at verse 13. We're not going to focus on verse 13, but I do think it it, uh, focuses our attention on the good life. Look at what he says there. Peter says in 1 Peter 3.13, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Now, that is a transitional statement that takes us into the next text, but it does summarize well verses 8 through 12. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? He's just described what is good in verses 8 through 12. What is good is contained in verses 8 through 12. That is the good life, and we are called to be zealous for what is good, to exert ourselves for good purposes and good ends, Being zealous for what is good is living the good life, the life that God intends for us, the life that God has in mind for us. And so in this section of Scripture, Peter is calling us as living stones in God's house to be zealous for what is good. He's calling us as God's people and as God's priests to be zealous for what is good, to be zealous and to seek the good life. Really, seeking what is good has been the theme that started back in chapter 2. Look with me at First Peter 2.12. twelve. First Peter 2.12. Peter says there, keep your behavior excellent. In other words, live the good life. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Live the good life before a watching world. Look at verse 15. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Again, live the good life before a watching world. And then in verse 17 of chapter 2, Peter gave a short and general list of what living the good life is to look like. Look at 1 Peter 2.17. Honor all people love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. And then, as we've seen, Peter gets very specific about what excellent behavior and right behavior, doing right, and honoring all people looks like in terms of various roles and responsibilities we have in life. He looked, first of all, at what it looks like for citizens submitting to governing authorities what the good life looks for them looks like for them then he showed us what it looks like for christian slaves submitting to their masters and for wives submitting to their husbands and for christian husbands to honor their wives all of those are descriptions of what it means as a christian to live the good life And having addressed each individual Christian in their respective roles and social categories, Peter now in chapter 3 and verse 8 zooms out again and addresses all believers. So, whereas before we were looking at these categories, these social categories of citizens and slaves and wives and husbands, now we're looking at all of us again. All right? And so as Peter zooms out and focuses attention on the the gathered Christian community and our our collective responsibility toward one another, we're going to see this morning six gospel-centered characteristics that we should be cultivating in order to experience the good life, to live out the good life. Six gospel-centered characteristics that Peter lists for us here. And please notice as we go along that all of these characteristics have reference to our relationship to others. In other words, the good life necessarily, according to the Bible, is a life in which we reflect the truth and power of the gospel through our lives and in our relationships with others. So you really can't live the good life on your own. You can't live the good life at a distance from others. You can't live the good life that God has called us to virtually. It doesn't work that way. We're called into relationship with one another, primarily with a focus here of the the body of Christ, the local church. And that's what these characteristics all have reference to. The good life that God intends for us can only be lived out within the context of the relationships we share within the local church. And all of these characteristics are centered upon the gospel, and they are fueled by the gospel, the truth of the gospel. Having experienced each of these things from God himself in the gospel through faith in Jesus Christ that motivates us and inspires us and empowers us to go out and emulate God's own saving activity toward us in showing us mercy and love and compassion and patience and humility. And we reflect that in our relationships with one another. 1 Peter 2.24. Look with me there real quick. Where the gospel is central... 1 Peter 2 Peter's just outlined how Jesus Christ serves as the ultimate example for us in suffering and how to suffer well as Christians. 1 Peter 2:24 says that he himself that is Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross so that so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. And so what Peter is describing here then in verses 8 through 13 is actually what it looks like in our relationships when we die to sin and live to righteousness, and all of it within the context of the local church. Peter is presenting a vision for us of what our fellowship with one another is to look like. The commentator Karen Jobs says this about Peter's list here. These are qualities that presume a high commitment to the stability and well-being of the community. Speaking of the local church community. Modern Western concepts concepts of individualism tend to trump commitment to the community. Can we all identify with that? Let me read that again. Modern Western concepts of individualism tend to trump commitment to community. That's the culture we live in, right? That's the culture we were raised in. That's the culture we know that this sort of rugged individualism that we pride ourselves in has a tendency to have a deleterious effect upon the Christian community, the local church. She continues. Where commitment is found, it is often evaluated in terms of individual's needs. An, individual's, an individual whose needs are no longer met by the community terminates the commitment and seeks a new or more obliging group. Such thinking runs counter to the qualities of 1 Peter 3.8. So what we're going to see in 1 Peter 3.8 and following is going to be an antidote to some of those harmful aspects of our own culture, that individualism, which in some aspects of life serves us well, but when it comes to gathering together hurts us, Peter's going to address many of those, all right? So that's where we're going. So the first quality that we're to cultivate in living the good life together is that we're to cultivate a gospel-centered like-mindedness. A gospel-centered like-mindedness. And again, I remind you that all of these qualities are centered upon the gospel. They're fueled by the gospel. They're inspired by the gospel. All right? Because it's in the gospel that we see God doing these things for us, which we in turn follow his role, follow his model, his example, and share with one another. All right, So the good life is to be found by cultivating like-mindedness. Or as the New American Standard and the ESV translate it, to be harmonious. Harmonious. Harmonious is good, you know. Music, really good music is harmonious. It's not cacophonous, right? It's harmonious. It's not necessarily that everyone is playing the same note, but that we're all playing it together at the same time, looking at the same sheet of music, And yet, playing slightly different notes, but those notes complement each other, and the result is beautiful music. And that's the picture here. We're to be like minded, we're to be harmonious. Literally translated, it would be to be same minded. What does that mean? Does that mean we all share exactly the same opinions and think exactly the same thoughts? How could that even be possible? My wife and I don't even share the same opinions always, right? We don't always share the same thoughts or have the same thinking. And multiply that, right, by dozens or hundreds or even thousands of Christians at one particular local church and to think that they could have the same opinions and the same thoughts, they couldn't. And that's not what Peter means. He means that they share the same fundamental gospel-centered convictions. That is, they share the same gospel beliefs, the same gospel loves, the same gospel commitments. They've been saved out of pagan beliefs, as Peter's writing to these Christians. They've been saved out of false religion and now they're part of a new community. A new community formed and centered around gospel truth. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at 1 Peter 1.18. 1 Peter 1.18. He talks about their history. He says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. This is the paganism you're coming from. But you have been redeemed, verse 19, with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. In other words, what unites you is not your common ancestral heritage. What unites you is your newfound commitment to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ crucified. Jesus Christ buried. Jesus Christ risen and coming again. That's What unites us. That's the nature and the core of our like-mindedness. Our common commitment to the gospel. The truth that the scriptures are God's inspired and inerrant word. This is what unites us. The truth of who God is as a unity and as a trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The truth about sin and God's judgment. The truth about God's love in sending His own Son, the truth about who Jesus is and what He came to do, the truth of His sacrificial death as a substitute for sinners, and the salvation and forgiveness that is offered through faith in Jesus Christ. This is what unites us. This is our common commitment. This is the like-mindedness that we are to value and cultivate in order to be a truly cohesive community. It's the truth that's found in our own 10 statement Statement of faith. It's the truth of the apostles' creed. It's the truth of the Nicene Creed. These are the truths that Christians have believed from the time of Christ's resurrection. They are the truths that unite us and make our bond as a community stronger. Paul writes to the Corinthians who were experiencing all kinds of divisions among them. And he says to them in 1 Corinthians 1.10, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Don't divide over these lesser issues, these secondary things. Don't let politics divide you or race divide you don't let any of these class issues and other things that we see dividing our country creep into the church and allow us to divide from one another don't let secondary theological issues divide you unite around the gospel of Jesus Christ and let nothing come between your bond in him Paul wrote to the Philippian believers in Philippians 2 2. He said, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And all of that goes back to the gospel itself. That's what unites us. We can easily focus on what makes us different from each other. There's plenty of those things, right? We can focus our attention on where we disagree and what marks us out from each other and who's more conservative than somebody else. And we can do that all day long, but that will never unite us. That will never make us closer to one another. In fact, if we focus all our attention on our differences, that will divide us. But when we focus on what we share in together, what has united us together in a spiritual unity with the Lord Jesus Christ and with one another, the gospel message, that focus results in a unity and a like-mindedness that strengthens our bonds with one another as believers. So, you want to live a good life as a Christian? Cultivate a gospel-centered like-mindedness. Focus on the gospel. Secondly, cultivate a gospel-centered sympathy. Cultivate a gospel-centered sympathy. To sum up, Peter says, verse 8, all of you be harmonious and sympathetic. What is a gospel-centered sympathy? Well, another way to translate, translate that would be to be understanding of one another. It is to show genuine interest in and concern for the needs and perspectives of others. Philippians 2:4: don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. We live in a self-absorbed world, and our natures is to be our sinful nature is to be self-absorbed people. Simply concerned with our own interests, our own concerns, our own preferences, our own opinions. That's not what we're called to as believers. To live a life of gospel centered sympathy means that we aren't living self centered lives. We're not living lives without so much as a concern or a thought for others, but rather we're cultivating. Sympathy. Romans twelve fifteen says: Rejoice with those who rejoice; weep with those who weep. Enter into the rejoicing of someone else when something wonderful comes to them. Give thanks to God. Rejoice along with them. And when some terrible thing befalls them, some great grief enters into their life. Enter into that grief with them. Share in that hardship with them. Galatians six two. Paul says, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ, the law of love. Bear one another's burdens. Cultivate a gospel-centered sympathy. Be listening. Be a good listener. When others are talking, don't be thinking simply about what you want to say next. That's a discipline. These things have to be cultivated, right? They don't come naturally to us. It is a supernatural work of God. It is a fruit that the Spirit produces in us as we yield ourselves to Him. But it's also something that we're to be diligent in and grow in. And we can all grow in cultivating gospel-centered sympathy. Thirdly, cultivate a gospel-centered family love a gospel-centered family love. Now, this quality among the five listed in verse 8 stands out as central to them all. Okay? And the way Peter wrote this, he intends it to stand out. If you would, he intends that that word brotherly as it's translated here, it's Philadelphia, right? Brotherly love. That word is intended we might we might be able to put it in bold or put it in italics or underline it. That's how Peter intends us to see it. You know how I know that? Because he wrote it in a chiasm. A chiasm is a literary device, and they're all throughout the Scriptures, but it's a literary device in which a list of items is so arranged that the central item is intended to stand out and be highlighted and be shouted to us. And that's precisely what Peter has done here. He's given us this list of five and the central point of it all is love. We shouldn't be surprised by that, right? Love is that mark that is to be reflective in the life of every believer, every Christian. They'll know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. And that's the kind of love that we're called to here, this brotherly love, this familial love. It is a gospel-centered family love. It is the love of family members for one another. Beloved, the church is a family. We are family. You may be new to the family. You may have been here a long time. You may be one of the most long-standing family members here at this church. But we are a family, whether you're new or whether you've been here a long time, we're all a family. And we're supposed to view ourselves that way, as fellow family members, as brothers and sisters in the Lord. We are a spiritual family made up of spiritual siblings, Brothers and sisters, spiritual mothers, spiritual fathers, spiritual children, spiritual patriarchs, spiritual matriarchs. And because the local church is a spiritual family, there ought to be the presence of family love, a deep and abiding love for one another. Do you view your church that way? As a family, a spiritual family. The reality is we are brothers and sisters in Christ. The reality is we as a family, a spiritual family, are able to understand one another, relate to one another, connect to one another, sympathize with one another in a way that oftentimes our biological families fall short. Especially those that are unbelieving. No, the church is to be a family gathering. That's what we are. When we gather together, we are a family. And we're to show family love for one another. First Peter one twenty-two. Peter's already mentioned this. He says, since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. Fervently love one another from the heart. What does it mean to live the good life? The life God intends us to live, it means that we're to love one another as family, spiritual family. Oftentimes, sadly, the church is not viewed as a family, but simply as an event to attend, as a product to be consumed. Oftentimes, sadly, we... We get sucked into this. We, we approach the Sunday morning gathering merely viewing it as a gathering that should meet my needs, that should encourage me, that should suit all of my preferences, rather than viewing it as a rich family reunion where everyone has a part to play, everyone contributes, everyone's bringing a dish to the family reunion your own spiritual gifting that God has given you for the building up of the body of Christ. A rich family reunion and an opportunity each Sunday to grow in family love for one another, to build on that rich heritage and family of faith that we share. First, in chapter 2 and verse 17, Peter commands us to love the brotherhood. Well, here again he says, show brotherly love. We know that Jesus said to love one another would be the distinguishing mark that we are his disciples. And 1 John warns us that if we do not love one another, then we have reason to question whether or not we're truly saved. If there's no care and concern for our spiritual family, are we even part of it? And a focus on the gospel and how it has united us in Jesus will help us to grow in family love for one another. So cultivate that. Fourth, cultivate a gospel-centered compassion. A gospel-centered compassion. And obviously, this flows right out of brotherly love, does it not? Family love, compassion for one another. The New American Standard Bible translates this as, Be kind-hearted. ESV translates it as tenderheartedness. Both are good. The idea here is to cultivate compassion, though. It is to have a softness of heart toward others. Soft hearts. We shouldn't come and approach this gathering with hard hearts. But ask God to use the oil of His Spirit and of His Word to soften our hearts toward one another. It's the opposite of being hard-hearted and cold. It's very similar to sympathy that was listed earlier. Sympathy and compassion surrounding brotherly love. Perhaps you aren't a particularly compassionate person. Perhaps that's hard for you. How can you grow in that? Well, put yourself in the other person's shoes. Consider life from their perspective. How would you be feeling? How might you be responding in a similar situation? How would you want others to treat you if you were in that same situation? All of that helps to cultivate compassion. Fifthly, cultivate a gospel centered humility. This is a lowliness of mind. To be low-minded with respect to ourselves. It is the opposite of being prideful. It is to be humble. Cultivate a gospel-centered humility. Philippians 2.3 Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, lowliness of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. When we gather On Sundays, or during the week in our life groups, or we get together for coffee, or whatever it may be, approach that meeting, that gathering, with humility of mind, lowliness of mind. Put others ahead of yourself. It's not about you getting the seat that you want, it's not about you singing the songs that you like. It's not about you having your needs met. It's about you coming to serve others. How can you be a blessing to others this morning? That should be our approach. Saying that humility was part of what it means to live the good life, Peter was actually saying something that was highly countercultural, and it still is. We live in a society that makes a king out of all of us, right? That we are, we are the center of the universe and the universe spins around us, right? But that's not true. That's not Christian. That's not what we're called to. It was the same way in Peter's day. Listen to what J.H. Eliot says about the culture of Peter's day. In the highly competitive and stratified world of Greco-Roman antiquity, Only those of degraded social status, think slaves or women, were humble. And humility was regarded as a sign of weakness and shame and inability to defend one's honor. Thus the high value placed on humility by Christians is remarkable. And it is remarkable. It remains remarkable. Our culture says promote yourself. Our culture says, if it's going to be, it's up to me. Our culture says, make yourself the most important person in your world. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Take up your cross and follow me. Jesus says, die to yourself. Jesus said, the greatest among you must be the least among you. The greatest among you must be a slave. Humble yourself. A church that is filled with prideful people will never seek to enter into other people's grief, never seek to serve other people's needs, never seek to give of themselves in sacrificial love. Pride is the enemy of true Christian community. Pride goes by other names. Rugged individualism. Independence. That's not biblical. We're not independent. You may think you are, but you're not. You are spiritually united to every other person in here. So am I. So let's live like it. Let's love like it. Let's serve like it. Let's care like it. That's the good life. We think the good life is out there to be had in the world. It's not. It's to be had in the context of loving relationships within the community that we've been born again into. Sixthly and finally, cultivate a gospel-centered response to mistreatment. Now, verse 8 clearly was intended for the Christian community. Verse 9 is somewhat transitional. We begin to think about how the world views us and how the world treats us. And sometimes it's how fellow Christians treat us, honestly. So verse 9 through 12 is really looking at both the Christian community and the world around us. It's our response to those who mistreat us by doing evil to us or by insulting us. Verse 9, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you will call, were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. What is to be the Christian's response when they are treated poorly? What is to be our response when people do evil things against us, when people insult us and abuse us? How are we to respond to that? Whether that evil or that insult comes from within the Christian community or from outside the Christian community, how should we as believers respond? Peter gives the answer here. And he does so by supporting his answer from Psalm 34, 12 through 16. He quotes from Psalm 34 in verses 10, 11, and 12. A psalm which plays a really important part throughout the letter to 1 Peter. There's all kinds of little trails in there that Peter has left, little breadcrumbs that lead us back to Psalm 34. It's kind of an interesting thing. But definitely he quotes directly from Psalm 34 right here in verses 10, 11, and 12. And Peter says we're not to return evil for evil or insult for insult. We're not to do unto others as they've done unto us. We're not to do simply what feels right to us in the midst of our hurt and our pain. That is what comes naturally to us. To get back at those who have hurt us. But that's not the way of Jesus. That's not the path Christians are called to. Jesus left us the model. Again, look back at 1 Peter 2.23. While being reviled, Jesus did not revile in return. Talking about the time of his crucifixion. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He kept trusting God in the moment. He didn't exchange insult for insult. He didn't do any of that. He kept quiet, and he kept entrusting his circumstance, his heart, his life to God. Jesus lived out exactly what he taught. He taught his disciples in Luke chapter 6 and verse 28, 28, bless those who curse you, Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. Whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Jesus uttered a blessing to his tormentors. As they were crucifying him there on the cross, he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. He asked God to bless them with forgiveness when they were hurling insults and doing all kinds of evil against him, he didn't turn and offer insults and evil back. Instead, he offered a blessing. Putting evil behind us and instead offering a blessing is the path we've been called to. Instead of insulting when we are insulted, we are to utter a blessing. When evil is done to us, we're not to respond with evil in kind, but with blessing instead. Do you see how revolutionary that is, beloved? And again, that's viewed as weakness. Again, it takes a humble heart to do that. A heart of love and self-sacrifice. Instead of uttering evil and threats and curses, instead we pray a blessing over them. We pray that God might reach them. We pray that God might show mercy on them and bring them to faith in Jesus or bring them to repentance. This is the Christian's response to mistreatment. It's not to rise up And claim our rights? It's to get on our knees and ask God to bless them because they're blind and they do not know what they're doing. And this gets to the heart of the purpose for which we've been called. We've been blessed in order to be a blessing to others. Verse 10 quoting from Psalm thirty-four twelve says the person who desires life and to see good days, the person who wants to live the good life, again, we see that. He must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Verse 11, he must turn away from evil and seek peace and pursue it. Instead of responding with evil, we're to respond as peacemakers. Not compounding the evil done in this world, but reversing it. As we have rebelled against God. As we have transgressed His holy law. And yet He has responded to us in mercy and kindness and grace and love. Even so, those who transgress against us. Those who treat us harshly. Those who treat us with evil. Those who hurl insults at us. We don't hurl it back. Instead, we say, God bless you. We pray for them, maybe silently. Sometimes that's the best thing to do, right? We can sometimes use our sanctimonious responses as daggers. I'm going to pray for you, right? You don't have to say that. Just do it. God will give you wisdom in the moment as to what you ought to say, but... We do all of this knowing that the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. And that God hears our prayers. He knows when we're suffering. He knows when we're being mistreated. And He cares. And He experienced the same thing in this world. And we respond as peacemakers knowing that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Those who compound evil. Those who respond in kind to evil. Instead, we let the Lord handle that, right? We, we entrust, keep entrusting ourselves to the just judge. We keep entrusting our circumstances to him, knowing that he will repay, that vengeance is his. And so we can respond in kindness and with blessing and with forgiveness. Beloved, how different we might be from the world around us if we were really serious about growing in these gospel-centered characteristics cultivating these things in our lives how much richer and deeper and sweeter might our fellowship be how much more of a light might our church be and yet as i see these things i want to encourage you in that i see these things operating in our lives and in our community in our fellowship together just as paul saw these same things happening in the thessalonian church But he didn't say, you guys have arrived. Good job. Sit back and enjoy life. He didn't say that. Listen to what he says to the Thessalonians. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, you're doing it. Good job. That you excel still more. There's always new ground to be gained. There's always a new hill to be conquered. There's always a new horizon to be explored in terms of the Lord's graces operating in our lives, in terms of of growing in these things. And may the Lord make it so among us that we might be characterized as a church, as a, a family of believers who love one another, who are sympathetic and compassionate toward one another, who don't respond to evil and unkindness, and mistreatment in the same way, but rather speak a blessing even over our enemies, even over those who hate us, knowing that God sees, that God knows, and that sometimes God uses His own people and their countercultural responses to draw many people to Himself. May the Lord make it so. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that among us all, Lord, we would excel still more in these things. That we would seek to live the good life, not as defined by the culture around us, which would come with very different answers to what it means to seek and live the good life. But Lord, our thinking is to be shaped by your word, not by the culture. And your word tells us what the good life is. It is a life lived in community with our brothers and sisters in Christ, It is a life lived as a light unto the darkness. Help us, Lord. We see areas of encouragement in our lives and in our fellowship and areas where we need to grow. We just need to grow. Lord, we know that you produce that growth in us as we center our lives on the gospel, as we reflect deeply upon it, as we live in the joy of it. You produce these things by your spirit. Operating within us. Produce it, Lord. Give growth. Give fruit in our lives. For our good. For your glory. And for the good of a lost world around us. As we turn our thoughts and minds and hearts to the gospel. As we see it in the presented and illustrated in the Lord's table. Be blessed, Lord Jesus Christ, as we bless your name. Be honored as we honor your name. We thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.